Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. If your Bible has study notes, you might see that some ancient manuscripts insert an extra verse in this week's Gospel at Luke 9.56. I think of this verse as the most important verse not in the Bible. And so the title for my essay this week is called A Spurious Verse with an Authentic Voice. My favorite text that should not be in the Bible. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, June 27, 2010. At Luke chapter 9, verse 56, some Greek manuscripts add a conclusion to the story. It reads, And Jesus said to them, You do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. As Jesus traveled to Jerusalem, he sent his advance team to a Samaritan village to prepare for his arrival. But the Gospel of Luke reads, The people there did not welcome him. Because they rejected Jesus, or maybe because of the Samaritans' ethnic hostility toward them, the disciples James and, John, James and John exploded in rage. Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? They probably spoke figuratively, not literally, but that's small consolation given their desire for revenge. Instead of rebuking the Samaritans, who rejected him, Jesus rebuked James and John, who tried to defend him. And then comes the extra verse that should not be in the Bible. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what kind of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. As of 2003, we had 5,735 ancient manuscripts of the New Testament. Some of them bits and pieces, scraps of papyrus, some of them complete books. No other ancient text, Homer or Aristotle, for example, enjoys anything remotely close to this avalanche of manuscript attestation. I've enjoyed viewing some of these ancient texts in the British Library and at the exhibit for the Dead Sea Scrolls when it was in San Diego. When textual scholars, God bless them, compare, contrast, and cross-check every last one of these 5,735 fragments of evidence, they reach an overwhelming consensus. Even though we don't have the original documents of Luke, and even though there are many differences among the 5,735 manuscripts, the Bible that we read today is a mirror image of the texts as they were originally written. In effect, we read the real McCoy and not some corrupt approximation. Unfortunately for me, this unprecedented textual precision 
leads the experts to reject my favorite addition to the Bible. In the footnote at the bottom of my Greek New Testament, the editors assign this variant reading a grade of C. That's no better than how you'd feel about getting a C on a test. It means that there's significant doubt that the verse Luke added, that someone added at Luke 9.56 belongs in the original. But I'm not so ready to give up. I'm glad that a later copyist inserted his gloss. It's like a one-sentence commentary on what he thought the gospel story meant. Jesus didn't come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Even though the edition doesn't convey the original words of Luke, it surely communicates the authentic spirit of Jesus. We don't know if Jesus spoke these words, but they express the broader Jesus tradition about which there's no debate. They sound like something he would say. They have the ring of truth. The authentic verse, Luke 19.10, sounds suspiciously similar to the non-verse, which in fact is one reason why textual critics reject it as spurious. Luke 19.10 reads, the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Similarly, John 3.17, God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. There's even a similar and also spurious textual variant in Matthew chapter 18, verse 11. The Son of Man came to save what was lost. So, the interpolation might not be authentic, but its sentiment sure is. When James and John invoke wrath on the Samaritans, they exemplified an attitude diametrically opposed to everything Jesus said and did. A few verses earlier, John tried to stop an exorcist from healing a person because, quote, he was not one of us. Luke 9.49. These zealous disciples transform the good news of God's unconditional love for all people into the bad news that God had it in for them. The good news belonged to them. The bad news was for other people. And so, for many people today, religion is what Chris Hitchens calls a force multiplier of tribal suspicions and hatred. And God is an angry tyrant before whom people must grovel in fear. But not for Jesus. As Pastor Rob Bell of Michigan wrote in his book, Velvet Elvis, the story of Jesus is good news for everyone, not just for believers. And it's good news, especially for those who don't believe it. Every person without exception can say with the psalmist in Psalm 56, verse 9, This I know, that God is for me. Paul emphasizes divine favor expressed through human love in this week's epistle. The only thing that matters, says Paul, is faith expressing itself in love. 
You can summarize the entire Bible, says Paul, in five words. Love your neighbor as yourself. This, you might know, is a near verbatim quote from Jesus himself, Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, 37, who had quoted it from the more ancient Leviticus 19, verse 18. To the Corinthians, Paul wrote that the greatest gift is love, without which we're nothing but an irritation and a nuisance. In writing to the Romans, Paul urged the believers not to owe anyone anything except the continuing debt to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Demonstrating divine favor to every person, rather than denying it to any person, validates claims about the love of God. For both Jesus and Paul, divine love made human was the only thing the entire thing, and the greatest thing. And so the additional verse added to the text of Luke chapter 9, 56 might be spurious, but nevertheless it's the authentic voice behind it. The Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And now for further reflection. In what ways do Christians today call down fire on other people like James and John? Why do you think we do this? And consider the words in 1 John chapter 4, 20 and 21. If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. The most favorite verse in the Bible that shouldn't be there. <clears throat> For books this week, I review The Lives of the Desert Fathers, translated by Norman Russell, introduction by Benedict Ward. Kalamazoo, Michigan, Cistercian Publications, 1981, 181 pages. <clears throat> At the end of the 4th century, seven monks from Jerusalem trekked to Egypt to document the lives and teachings of the monks who had fled the corruptions of the world for the vast, trackless desert in order to do battle with the interior geography of the human heart. Their trip produced this anonymous text written in Greek and then later translated into Latin and amended by Rufinus. If you read this travelogue in conjunction with its companion volume, The Sayings of the Desert Fathers, both of which are eminently readable, you'll enjoy an eyewitness account of these wise and witty pilgrims. A lengthy introduction by Sister Benedicta Ward gives an excellent overview of the early monks' lives, context, and ideals. The text itself of about 50 pages then follows in 26 chapters, roughly one for each desert dweller. 
In his prologue, the author describes the monks as defenders of all humanity. Quote, the people depend on the prayers of these monks as if on God himself. It's clear to all who dwell there that through them the world is kept in being and that through them too human life is preserved and honored by God. The monks, though, saw themselves much differently. With brutal candor and deep compassion, they saw themselves as poor sinners who wanted to strip away the many layers of the false self in order that the true self created in God's image could offer worship to God alone and love to humanity. As they always put it, as much as that is humanly possible. The task never ended, and it was difficult. As John Climacus would write two centuries later, it is hard, truly hard. We should expect trials until our last breath, advises one famous saying, and yet we should also never despair of God's mercy. Some of the monks lived in caves as hermits. Some lived in communities behind walls, and some crafted a style of life in between the two. Some even wandered continuously in permanent exile. These monks came from all walks of life, and one of their greatest pieces of wisdom is the acknowledgement that every person is different due to temperament, personal history, strengths and weaknesses, the call of God, and so on. These pages introduce us to former criminals, scholars, tomb robbers, blacksmiths, and illiterate peasants. Their number is past counting, says the author. Ammon was father to 3,000 monks. Serapion guided 10,000 brothers in a hermitage. In the end, what we're called to imitate is not the austere particulars of their exterior asceticism, but their interior pursuit of the worship of God and the love of humanity. Over the last 20 years, I've come to love these desert mothers and fathers as reliable guides to the journey with Jesus. <clears throat> the title of the book, The Lives of the Desert Fathers, not to be confused with a similar book, The Sayings of the Desert Fathers. For film this week, we travel to Africa, and in particular, the country of Nigeria. The title of the film, Welcome to Nollywood. Welcome to Nollywood documents the explosion of filmmaking in Nigeria over the last 20 years, from nothing at all in 1990 to a $300 million a year industry today. Some 2,400 movies a year are produced and released in Nigeria straight to video, cassette tapes or CDs, and they become far more popular than their rivals from Hollywood and Bollywood. The films cost about $1.50 to make and sell for $3. We have democratized the means of production, observed one insider. The industry receives no help at all from the Nigerian government or any foreign investment. Directors and producers pony up their own funds. 
The American director, Jamie Meltzer, spent six weeks in Nigeria interviewing three top directors, actors, and critics to learn about this entrepreneurial phenomenon. In the last part of the film, Meltzer goes on set to observe and record the making of a film called La Viva, La Viva about the Liberian Civil War. The film took 98 days to produce, an eternity in contrast to most films which take about 10 days. At 58 minutes, this is a fascinating look at the evolution of film in one of the most unexpected places. Welcome to Nollywood, filmmaking in Nigeria, 2007. And finally for this week, we continue our series by John Berryman, 1914 to 1972. Eleven Addresses to the Lord, number five. Holy and Holy. The damned are said to say, we never thought we would come into this place. I'm fairly clear, my friend, there's no such place ordained for inappropriate and evil man. Surely they fall dull and forget. We too, the more or less just, I feel, fall asleep, dreamless forever while the worlds hurl out. Rest may be your ultimate gift. <clears throat> Rest or transfiguration, come and come whenever thou wilt. My daughter and my son fend will without me when my work is done in your opinion. Strengthen my widow. Let her dream on me through tranquil hours less and down to less. Abrupt elsewhere her heart I sharply hope. I leave her in wise hands. Eleven Addresses to the Lord, number five, by John Berryman. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, June 27th, 2010. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.